Welcome to Full Rigor, a Florida true crime podcast. I'm Karen Curtis. So I came up with the idea for this podcast after I covered a story this week about three people who escaped serious injury on the Treasure Coast because they fell out of a 24-foot speedboat, emphasis on speed, and they were using the boat for a photo shoot. Well, after they fell in the water, the empty craft started circling around them and nearly hit them several times. And then suddenly, it accelerated in the direction of several docks. There was actually video of it. It looked just like the latest James Bond movie, COVID Never Dies. And it hit one dock, sending it airborne before it struck a second dock and then came to rest on the shore. Now, one of the men that flew off the boat sustained some minor injuries, but the Florida Fish and Wildlife Commission is leading the investigation into this boating incident. I actually think the FAA should get involved because the boat took flight. It was airborne. But there's been a lot of boating accidents. In fact, another one comes to mind, the death of Miami Marlins pitcher Jose Fernandez, who really threw some heat as a probable operator of a speeding boat that crashed into a Miami Beach jetty right off government cut September 25th, 2017, killed the baseball star and two other men. According to the report that was issued by the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission, they investigated the accident and the ME found Fernandez's blood ethanol level or alcohol level was between 0.14 or 0.16%, which would be twice the legal limit of 0.08. The medical examiner determined that Fernandez and another occupant on the boat both had cocaine in their system. Now, Fernandez's 32-foot speedboat slammed into the rocks off government cut at 3 in the morning on September 25, 2016, at the speed of 65.7 miles per hour. Now, Fernandez and the boat's other occupants, Emilio Jesus Marseilles, he's 27, and Eduardo Rivero, 25, were ejected. Kind of like the guys in the other boat, but they survived. Now, Miami-Dade Fire Rescue crews responded and divers found Fernandez submerged under the boat. He was actually pinned between the T-top and a boulder on government cut. They, like, stick out into the ocean from the jetty. That's where all of the cruise ships come in. If you're going to take a cruise, you usually head out of Miami from that area. Now, Marseilles was submerged in a tidal pool next to the jetty's surface, and Rivera was submerged his head and chest under a boulder. They were all pronounced dead at the scene, of course. Now, the report described how officials were not able to identify Fernandez by his driver's license photo because of face trauma. That's called deceleration trauma. They searched the internet for photos of Fernandez's tattoo, which had a baseball surrounded by gears to identify him. They also found a Major League Baseball identification card inside his wallet. Now, investigators concluded that had Fernandez survived the crash, he would have been charged with multiple crimes, felonies, including boating under the influence manslaughter, vessel homicide, and reckless or careless operation of the vehicle. Needless to say, I don't think he'd be back on the pitcher's mound anytime soon. By the way, the Marlins won the World Series in 1997, and they also won in 2003. Now, that year, they beat the Yankees, and here's Joe Buck with his very unenthusiastic coverage of the Marlins' win. The exuberance of being an expansion franchise in 93, winning it in 97, gutting the team the next season. Trying to win it all again. Posada, slow roller right side. Beckett picks it up, tags Posada, and the Florida Marlins are world champions. The Marlins have stunned the Yankees, shot New York, 
and this improbable team, improbable ride, they end up on top, winning in six games over the Yankees. Notice how he said, and the Marlins have won the World Series. I think he was rooting for the Yankees. But the Marlins franchise began as an expansion team, as Joe Buck said, June 10th, 1991. And I was the primetime anchor for the ABC affiliate in West Palm Beach, WPBF, and we actually did our evening newscast live from center field on the first day the franchise, the Miami Marlins, played ball. And now some actual audio from that live newscast on April 4th, 1993. It was actually after the first game ever for the Florida Marlins against the L.A. Dodgers, who are in the World Series right now against the Tampa Bay Rays. The new Center 25 team is bringing it to you live from Joe Robbie Stadium. You'll hear my voice, and I'm joined by our sports director, Mark Goldberg. Hello again, everybody, and it was a memorable day for baseball here in South Florida. Well, finally, Florida has a team to call its own, and if you didn't get a chance to catch the sights and sounds of opening day, hey, we're going to relive everything from the opening of the gates to the last pitch on our team coverage. And we're going to begin, I guess, the story that everyone wants to know about, and that's what happened today. And if you don't know about it, you were probably stuck in a car without a radio. <laughs> the Florida Marlins defeated the Los Angeles Dodgers in their inaugural game, 6-3. to three. It was a memorable day. And they played at the time at Joe Robbie Stadium, which they shared with the Miami Dolphins. Now, I was joined by some of the future stars of the team, Jeff Conine and Gary Sheffield, and also the owner, Wayne Hyzinga, Bazinga. Then Huizinga, after they won the World Series in 97, completely dismantled that team and then built it up again, and they won again in 2003, and then they parted out the team again. Who knows if pitching phenom Jose Fernandez had lived and didn't get in that horrific boating accident, he might have taken the Marlins to another World Series in 2017. Marlins finally made the playoffs again this year, but lost to the Braves. Now, there was another deadly boating accident involving a very high-profile South Florida couple. In fact, they live on Star Island, and that would be Gloria and Emilio Estefan, you know, of the Miami Sound Machine. Come on, baby, let's do the conga. Anyway, this was in 1995. So what happened was the pilot of a personal watercraft, some guy driving a jet ski with a passenger on the back, collided with their pleasure boat. And the Estefans were the only people on the 33-foot vessel, and apparently Emilio was piloting the vessel. And according to Marine Patrol, the accident was not the fault of Emilio because the boat was going less than 20 miles an hour, about a quarter mile offshore from South Beach. So the wave runner went flying after hitting the powerboat's wake and then hit the rear of the Estefans boat and threw the pilot of the wave runner into the boat's propeller. Ugh. His 29-year-old Howard Clark, law student at Howard University, he died instantly of severe head and chest wounds. Can you imagine? It's according to the medical examiner. Can you imagine being on the boat and seeing this happen? Uh, the Estefans were devastated. The passenger on the back of the jet ski was hospitalized in stable condition but lived. But I'll bet you there were some lawsuits involved in this one. Just because it's not your fault doesn't mean that a wrongful death lawsuit can't be filed, especially if you are a millionaire. And this boating near catastrophe also happened this week in Florida. An 11-year-old Florida boy is being hailed a hero for his quick thinking to save his grandparents on a boating trip in the Florida Keys. 11-year-old Ivani Perez was boating with Grandmama and Grandpapa off the Keys when the anchor line got caught in the propeller of the motor. Now, his grandfather tried to get the line out of the blades, but he had to cut it 
And so the boat started floating away from Grandpa. And I turn around and they're 20, 30 feet away already. So then Grandma panicked and she jumped into the water to get Grandpa. And I just jumped in with the pool noodles because my thought was that I need to get to him before he's so far that I can't get to him. So Avani, the 11-year-old, called 911 for the first time in his life. It was weird because I've never called 911. I've never had to do that. 911, what is the location of your emergency? Hello? And my parents are floating away and I'm in a boat. And- okay, sweetie. Your grandparents and they have noodles right now, right? Not life vests, but they're floating on noodles. They're floating on noodles. Okay. Can you still see them? Yeah, I can still see them. Right, I don't want you to hang up until we get help to you. Yeah, you're yeah, doing God. a You're doing a fantastic job. Thank God for the noodles. <laughs> love noodles. My daughter used to love noodles and peas. That would be Kraft macaroni and cheese with peas. But I digress. In case you don't know what a pool noodle is, it's a long cylindrical floating device that you hold on to like under your armpits. They're also called a floaty and you can weaponize them against big fat kids who do the butterfly and splash you in the pool. Anyway, Avani not only called 911, but he was able to give GPS coordinates to first responders because remember, they're out in the ocean off the Florida Keys. He also stayed on the line with 911 dispatch for an hour until help arrived. So this is a case where calling 911 during a boating catastrophe paid off, which as you're about to find out, doesn't always happen. Anyway, all these boating accidents got me thinking about the storm of the century here in South Florida, better known as the no-name storm and its deadly consequences on some very high society boaters. It was March 1993. It's been almost 25 years since the no-name storm, storm of the century. It was a freak storm, a super storm, storm with no name. It wasn't the perfect storm. The October 1991 storm that sank the Andrea Gale, the George Clooney movie. No, here's some audio from that day from the storm of the century. You having some boats pile up down there at the end of the canal? Yeah, they mu- Wow. Yeah, ask him if any boats are flying. Well, a uh, aluminum boat just come down by, coming down your canal uh, free with an outboard motor on it. And somebody said they thought they saw a cabin cruiser come down there. Watch that Wow. Since then, the National Hurricane Center has developed the capability to forecast a storm before it even develops. Sometimes they kind of pop up over the Bahamas and take us off guard. Well, they can even put up watches and warnings when there's no storm yet. But this was not the case back in 1993. In fact, my baby daddy, he won an Emmy for his video coverage of the huge waves that crashed on shore along Palm Beach during the storm of the century. It was really, really wild. Now, in the summer, crossing over from the Bahamas is a cakewalk. You could cross over to Grand Bahama in a 14-foot flat-bottom boat with an outboard motor and a few jerry cans of gas. Plenty of people made that crossing without the aid of a GPS receiver. However, two boys from Jupiter attempted to make the crossing in a small boat and never made it. Their parents keep praying for the safe return of Austin Stefanos and Perry Cohen. The two 14-year-old Tequesta boys were last seen piloting a 19-foot fishing boat out of the Jupiter Inlet on July 24th, 2017. I'll put together a full rigor podcast on their disappearance in the near future. But for the purposes of this week's episode, I will concentrate on the storm of the century and its effect on Palm Beach. 
Now, in the winter, the seas are rough, but in the summer, unless there's a hurricane, the oceans are generally calm, and the crossing, like I said, is a cakewalk. So that brings me to the owner of several restaurants on Palm Beach, Chuck Muir. Now, you may know him as the owner of Charlie's Crab. I'm from Michigan, so I remember Charlie's Crab in Michigan. But they also own the restaurant Chuck and Harold's. That's on Palm Beach. It's if you come over the Royal Poinciana Bridge, the North Bridge, you'll see it there on the left. Well, now it's not there anymore. But one of my old haunts back when I was the anchor at Channel 25 in the 90s, especially during the William Kennedy Smith rape trial in the early 90s, when all the journalists from New York, from the New York Post and the Times and the Boston Globe, will gather for a drink and a bite. And we'd all talk about the case and fraternize. Actually, the bartender from Chuck and Harold's was called to testify in the rape trial of William Kennedy Smith because Senator Ted Kennedy, who was hungover, and his nephew, William, were at the bar, Chuck and Harold's, the morning after the event, the alleged rape. And they were discussing what happened in earshot of the bartender. Now, William Kennedy Smith, of course, was acquitted. And if you want to know more about that case, please buy my book, The Accuser. It has everything you need to know about it in there, plus the true story of Cheryl Ann Arujo. She was gang raped on a pool table in New Bedford, Massachusetts, which was Senator Ted Kennedy's district. He represented them. She was a constituent. And she died in a weird traffic accident in Miami before the movie The Accused with Jodie Foster came out in 1988. It's really compelling reading. Go to Amazon and buy it. The Accuser. Anyway, Chuck Muir grew up in Michigan, as did I, and opened a restaurant there in October of 1964. I was born in 62. Later, he opened a restaurant named Charlie's Crab on Palm Beach. It used to be right to the south of Worth Avenue, right on the ocean. It was a beautiful location. Now, Chuck Muir had a big boat, a 40-foot sailboat, not a motorcraft, but a sailboat, and that's pretty large. And it was called the Charlie's Crab. Now, on March 13th, 1993, Charles and Betty Muir, both 55 years old at the time, and their friends, their lifelong friends, George and Lynn Drummy, attempted to cross from the Bahamas to Palm Beach County when this freak storm of the century just blew up. Now, the storm hit much more quickly further south with greater intensity than had been forecast. And in fact, it really wasn't forecast. It just popped up. And by the time the freak storm left Florida, it had killed more people than Hurricane Andrew, which I also discussed in a previous podcast. Episode 58, Wicked Killer Terrorist Mother Nature. The freak storm also caused $500 million worth of damage. And Governor Lawton Childs wrote a scathing letter lambasting the National Weather Service for their poor forecasting because it caught everybody off guard. Now, Chuck Muir's party had probably nearly completed the crossing before they heard any forecast of an impending storm on their marine radio. And by the time they knew of the storm, it was too late to turn back. So they would have been battling, get this, 30-foot seas, 70-mile-per-hour winds. They're on a sailboat in the pre-dawn blackness. And Chuck Muir placed two calls, one at 4.25 a.m. and another one at 4.27 a.m. to the Palm Beach County's Emergency Center. And each time there was only crackle and static at the end of the line. They seemed to be located somewhere off Lantana. I've simulated that here. I'm on one. What's your emergency? I'm on one. What's your emergency? So that's two calls and that's it. 
Now, I don't know if they had a satellite phone or a cell phone, but officials believe that they were about a mile offshore, off Lantana, when they tried to make the call. And it would have been during the storm, so it would have really been difficult to get a signal. I've got a bar. Call now. Help. And I just want to take a side trip here real quick to tell you, I like Charlie's Crab, but my favorite restaurant is Red Lobster. And I met my second husband there at a radio event with Magic 102.7. I was part of the morning show with Rick Shaw and Donna Davis back in the early 2000s. And the station had a Krabby Boss contest. And the winner was a guy who brought his friend Roger along to dinner at Red Lobster. And I was sitting next to Rick, minding my own business with drawn butter running down my arms and dripping off my elbows and empty crab leg shells piled up in front of me when Roger introduced himself. He was sitting across the table with his friend who had won the Krabby Boss Contest. He had to write a letter to the station explaining just how crabby his boss was. He worked for the post office, so there you have it. So Roger stood behind me for a station photo, and I felt an electricity. And Then he asked me to a Tim McGraw concert. Hell yes! And the rest was history. I married him in 2001, and we divorced in 2006. But ever since then, I've been single, and I am living like I am dying. Anyway, back to the storm of the century and Charlie's Crab. Now, 20 years later, no trace of the 40-foot catch or its four occupants have ever been found. I do believe there was a triangular beat-up piece of red fiberglass that washed ashore, and it could have been part of the hull of the Charlie's Crab. But they still remain unaccounted for, and they're presumed victims of the storm of the century. But the Muir family had to wait seven years because there was no evidence and no bodies or no nothing in order to declare Chuck and Betty dead. Now, crew members aboard a Coast Guard Falcon jet were among the last to see the sailboat, the Charlie's Crab. The jet, on a routine patrol, flew over the boat at 2.45 p.m. on March 12th as the Charlie's Crab headed northwest from Chubb K toward the Great Isaac Light. That light tower is used as a local landmark on the western edge of the Bahamas. Now, the location of the boat at that time would have put it on a track to be headed home, according to the Coast Guard. The last time anyone on the boat was heard from was March 11th when George Drummy called his son from Nassau and he said, we're in Nassau, I'll see you Sunday. So Muir was a skilled sailor. There's a lot of sailing in Michigan as well. We've got, you know, the Great Lakes. And apparently he left only a general itinerary with his business associates and seven children. So Chuck Muir and his wife sailed to the Bahamas on March 2nd. The other couple, the Drummies, flew in and met them on Paradise Island, and then they sailed around the Bahamas for about two weeks, or 10 days, I guess, and started back on the 12th. Now, that whole area where they got lost is known as the Bermuda Triangle, or Devil's Triangle. <sighs> so Chuck Muir and his wife and two friends disappeared in the Bermuda Triangle. It's located in the western part of the North Atlantic Ocean where a number of aircraft and ships have mysteriously gone missing. Compasses spin out of control. They lose time. They fly in a cloud and they end up 30 miles in another direction. It's like they fly or sail into a wormhole. But of course, most reputable sources dismiss any idea that there's any mystery to Devil's Triangle. But their disappearance prompted me to unofficially rename Chuck and Harold's restaurant to And Harold's. Too soon? It was 1993. 
there's really no great information about this missing at sea mystery. There's no photos, there's no video, except of course for the video that my ex-husband shot that won an Emmy. But there's no video of Chuck Muir or his missing boat. You would think someone that rich and famous, they would have pulled out all the stops. I mean, poor Chuck's demise. Here's a guy that had everything to live for. He was making money, hand over fist, living on Palm Beach. Bought a sweet 40-foot boat named the Charlie's Crab. Sailed it back and forth between the Bahamas and Palm Beach County. And in the aftermath of their tragic deaths, there were a flurry of wrongful death lawsuits filed that revolved around general maritime law and the Death on High Seas Act. And of course, the Charlie's Crab restaurants were unloaded in 2002. And in remembrance, every March 13th, Susan Muir, one of the daughters, drops a bouquet of flowers into the closest body of water and prays for her parents. This past March, she tossed a bouquet off a 300-foot cliff above Lake Michigan, which is really perfectly splendid. Rest in peace, Chuck and Betty Muir and George and Lynn Drummy. Glub, glub, glub. I'll leave you now with an uplifting story about a South Florida boater lost at sea. He was thrown overboard and left for dead for the sharks to eat. It was February 2015. Rob Conrad, a former Miami Dolphins fullback, fell off his recreational boat while he was nine miles offshore. He was alone. Everyone's fallen off their boat. So Conrad was fishing alone. He caught a fish, and at the same time he tried to pull it in, a wave hit his boat, knocking him out of the boat. Now his boat was on autopilot, so it took off. He had no life jacket, no radio. He was about nine miles offshore of Palm Beach County, but with the Gulf Stream and the current, he actually swam 27 miles, and when he fell into the water... He didn't know which direction to swim in because you can't see the shoreline from that far out. So he started swimming toward the sun, which would have been setting in the west. So he swam and he swam and he swam. He was alternating between backstroke and the breaststroke. I mean, Rob Conrad was a Miami Dolphins fullback. He was in pretty good shape, but he swam for 16 hours. And the swift current pulled him north, turning nine miles into 27. Now, twice rescuers failed to see him. A fishing boat 50 yards away and a Coast Guard helicopter. He saw them, but they didn't see him. The Coast Guard helicopter is known as a Red Dolphin. It has an enclosed tail rotor. It's also known as a Whisper helicopter because you really can't hear it. Here's Rob Conrad. I shouldn't be here. I quickly realized that I was in, in, in a real bad situation. Bit by jellyfish. I was circled by a shark. Luckily, they one circle around and left. I just said, look, I'm not dying tonight. I've got two, two beautiful daughters. I was hitting that shore. Well, he finally did hit the shore and he crawled up on the sand and he was so cold. He had hypothermia and his calves were so cramped. He balled up in the fetal position and found, somebody found him finally. And of course, his wife was ecstatic when they called her and said that they had found him and he was alive. Now, surviving swimming 27 miles, Rob Conrad is truly a Miami Dolphin. Whereas, Jose Fernandez, not a very good Marlin. I think I would have given up, actually, if I was that far out. Finally, I want to leave you with another story. There's hope that modern technology can solve an old murder case in Broward County. 
I believe this is part of a series of murders that I told you about in my previous episode, number 67, Reheated Leftover Cold Cases. I think this case could be part of a spree of cold case killings known as the flat tire murders from the 1970s in South Florida that have never been solved. Young women were found murdered and raped in or near canals in Broward County after their tires were flattened in a parking lot. Now, I spoke with the sister of one of the victims about new evidence in the case. And again, you can hear it in episode 67, Reheated Leftover Cold Cases. But in this case, Davy Police released a composite digital image of a woman whose body was found in a canal 45 years ago. Same time frame, same M.O. Now, the image is of what experts believe the woman looked like at the time of her death, two days before Christmas in 1975. And police hope the woman's family will see this image and identify her. Now, she is described as white, between 15 and 27 years old. That's kind of an unwieldy window. 5'3", 123 pounds, brown hair and gaps in her upper and lower teeth. I'll put it on my Full Rigor Podcast Instagram account, the photo, just in case. You never know. You might recognize her. I would absolutely love it if we could solve this cold case here on Full Rigor Podcast. Help me out. Well, that wraps up Full Rigor. Be sure to subscribe. And thanks for joining me. Until next time.